chapter 1. That's where we're going to be. Uh, we're going to look at a few things in the book of Acts. All right. Welcome to The Point. Every Monday night we're here at 7 o'clock and we just study together. Um, I'm going to, of course, do um, kind of lead most of the discussion and then I want to throw out some questions. I want some feedback from you guys. We're going to have uh, make this a bit of a dialogue along the way, talking about different books as well along the way. Um, wonderful book, I'll tell you right off the bat, if you want to write it down on your notes, there's a book called Under the Influence by Alvin Schmidt. Um, one of my favorite books, actually, Under the Influence by Alvin Schmidt, How Christianity Transformed Civilization. He's a historian, and uh, he was at, let's see, he was, um, where did he teach? Professor of Sociology at Illinois College in Jacksonville, Illinois, is where he was. But um, anyway, he basically shows you how Christianity fundamentally transformed the entire Western world. Um, we're going to look at some of these things here. I've titled the talk tonight, Jesus Among Other Faiths, Obstacles in the Early Church. Um, and we're going to look at what these, what sociologists call resistance barriers were in the early church. You know, Will Durant, probably one of the most famous historians of the 20th century, he and his wife Ariel wrote a 12-volume history of civilization. Anybody own that 12-volume set? One of you. Wonderful. Awesome. Um, he wrote a 12-volume set. Will and Ariel Durant were avowed atheists. They were very, uh, uh, they weren't bashful about communicating their, their lack of religious faith in that sense. But they wrote a really excellent history. They traveled the world. I don't know how many decades it took them to actually compile this thing and write it. But in their volume called Caesar and Christ, there's a section where they're talking about the early followers of Jesus, namely the disciples. And in this one little paragraph, Will um, and Ariel Durant said, they said that 12 uneducated commoner, common men um, could overturn their world through their message is almost a miracle. Almost. Some would argue it was a miracle. Um, what I want to do tonight is I want to show you just exactly what, how implausible it would have been for 12 ordinary men to preach a message that was so fundamentally at odds with their entire world, and yet their message would eventually transform the entire world. Uh, when you look at some other religions in the world, let's think about these resistance barriers. When I say resistance barrier, what do I mean? Let's make sure we're on the same page here. What do I mean? What do you think I mean when I say a resistance barrier? What is that? Anybody? There you go. Yeah, something that's a hindrance. Yeah, it, it keeps you from actually accomplishing your task. And so a resistance barrier to a religion would be that your message somehow has to overcome certain cultural, social, religious barriers where they are in order for you to succeed or to accomplish what it is that you want to accomplish. So, for instance, if you look at some of the religions of the world, these studies have been done on resistance barriers. Um, what were the what were the resistance? For instance, let's take uh, Mormonism. Okay, Mormonism eventually. Um, where did it begin? First of all, where did it begin? Okay, Joseph Smith in New York. That's right. Now, was he well received in New York? No, he wasn't. So eventually, they left. Right? They weren't growing really fast. A lot of family members, close friends, were kind of intrigued by this. Um, they didn't really grow until where? Until they did what? Where did they end up moving to? Yeah, they ended up moving to, to, to Utah, the Salt Lake City area, okay? 
Now, at that time, was Utah a very populated area? No, so it was wide open. So it's a great place for anybody who wants to kind of establish a belief system and to kind of breed within. Now, one of the things that helped Mormonism to grow was their doctrine of marriage. Specifically what at that time? Polygamy. That's right. So if I can have multiple wives and I can have children by all of those wives, then I can grow very fast because I can begin raising these children and begin really spreading quickly. And sure enough, if you look at kind of the sociology and the growth of Mormonism early on, it was kind of an inbreeding through polygamy and it expanded very rapidly. Now, a lot of times you'll hear Mormons say, look how fast we grew. That will be one of their arguments for the truth of their faith. But it doesn't take long to see what the resistance barriers were to their growth in Utah, which was minimal. Um, And you see, well, of course you grew fast. You moved away from the cultural center, New York, where it was embedded with Orthodox Christianity. Now, had they survived in New York and took over the state, that would have been something, wouldn't it? But to go to Utah, when no one lives in Utah at that time, uh, and you survive there, well, that's, that's, a, that's a diminished resistance barrier, isn't it? Y'all with me on that? Or you take Islam, for instance. Okay, Anybody that's done an early study of Islam. Islam initially began with Muhammad receiving a revelation in, in a cave from, from, um, from, an, from the angel Gabriel. He goes to his wife, um, uh, Khadija, and he he says to her, I had this vision, and it's frightening. I think it was a demon. His wife says to him, now this is from the biographies of, by Muslim scholars themselves. This isn't kind of a Christian biography of Islam. This is in their own writings, the history of Islam. His wife says, oh, no, 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 that was God. Now, how she would know that, I'm, I'm, I'm a little perplexed by She wasn't in the cave. She didn't see the angel. He just says this story. He says, I think it was a demon. She says, no, no, it was God. So he eventually believes her that it was was God. Eventually, they were in, in, in Mecca. They fled Mecca because of why? Persecution. The people in Mecca were rejecting the teachings of Muhammad and his new teaching on monotheism. They flee to Medina. They stay in Medina for years. And what does he do over the years while he's in Medina? Anybody know what he does? He builds an army. And he gets an army and eventually gets it up to about 10,000 people. And what they do is, one of the ways he was able to build this army was they were, uh, they were uh, ravaging these caravans that were going by and they were stealing from them. And that was kind of a, um, uh, kind of a way that these people could take care of themselves and, 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 and not get wealthy, but at least provide for themselves. And eventually he takes this army, promises them great wealth and, and power, and they eventually go to Mecca uh, as an army, and they force Mecca to submit to his newfound revelation. And he forces them to submit under the sword. Now, I'm not sure how big that resistance barrier is, because Mecca didn't even put up a fight. They just gave in right away and said, hey, we don't want to fight here. We'll believe in the God that you say. Now, at the time, Mecca was completely into paganism and idolatry. They had no really clearly defined belief in any particular God. It was just polytheism all around Mecca. So for Muhammad to come in and give this monotheistic view of God, 
suddenly to these people. Is that a huge resistance barrier to those people since religion wasn't a major part of their life anyway? No, it wasn't, it wasn't a huge resistance barrier. So you see there, or you take Hinduism, for instance, and you see Hinduism begun in the Indus Valley in, the, in India uh, when they went in there. Well, Hinduism essentially is all-embracing. Everything is a divine spark of the whole. So it's all-embracing. Therefore, wherever, whatever area they went into, the resistance levels among a people who are already pagan and polytheistic is not going to be that great. Are you all with me? So you look at these religions of the world and you say, the resistance levels aren't that great for a lot of these belief systems to grow and to feed from within. But you look at, for instance, Judaism. Okay, Who's the father of Judaism? The first patriarch. Abraham. Abraham gets called out of the city of Ur. That's right. He gets a promise from God that he will have a a land, seed, and he'll be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. And now Abraham begins a family. Well, you don't really see Judaism really flourish, right, until you get to the time of Moses. And during that time, what conditions are they in? They're under oppression in Egypt, right? Now, was there a resistance level for Judaism to survive in Egypt to maintain their monotheism? You bet there was a huge resistance level. Number one, they had, to bow, they had to bow to Pharaoh as a god, right? They had to pay tribute to Pharaoh. Uh, Egypt worked over Israel hard until finally Israel fled into the wilderness. Was there much of a resistance level for the Israelites now in the wilderness? You bet there was. They could have fled back to Egypt, right? Gone back to the leeks and the onions and all the stuff that they were whining about. But they stayed for 40 years in the wilderness. Once they get out of the wilderness, what do they enter into? The promised land. Well, what do they got to do now to survive? They got to go to war. You got the Canaanites and the Sittites and the Hittites and the Cellulites and everyone else there, right? Ready to do battle, right? Resistance levels were huge. What's that? Yeah, they were tough. They were big people. So, a lot of resistance level for Judaism to survive. And they did. They survived. There was a remnant over time that was able to be preserved through there. Remarkable. You get to Christianity all of a sudden, and now you have to ask the question, what were the resistance barriers for Christianity? And what we will find is that of all of the religions of the world, the resistance barriers for Christianity exceeded all of them. We're going to look at just 12 of them right here. I'm going to show them to you. But I want, to look, I want you to look at the book of Acts because I want you to see something. In chapter 1, you see that Jesus tells the disciples, he says to them in verse 7, he says, It's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So what is Jesus predicting about his, his followers? What's going to happen? They're going to spread everywhere. He doesn't say that you're going to be this localized group of followers in Jerusalem and just hunker in and, and hold your ground in Jerusalem. He says you're going to spread out of Jerusalem. You're going to spread into Judea, into Samaria, and then you're going to go into the outermost parts of the earth. A lot like Jesus' great commission statement, which was what? Yeah, go you therefore into all of the nations. See? All of the nations. 
As soon as you hear that, immediately, we've talked about this before, your mind should immediately go to Abraham. And what was the promise that God gave to Abraham? That in your seed, what? All of the nations of the earth shall what? Be blessed. All of the nations of the earth shall be blessed with the seed of Abraham. Jesus lives his life, gives his final commission. Go ye therefore into all of the nations, baptizing and teaching them. He comes back and he tells the disciples, stay in Jerusalem, wait till the Holy Spirit comes, because when that power comes, you will go from Judea to Samaria to the outermost parts of the earth. See that? It's a wonderful prediction. But man, the resistance levels are huge in order for this thing to happen. What does God have to do in order for them to overcome the inertia of this resistance socially, culturally, and philosophically in their world? Well, chapter 1, look what Jesus does. He says, in my former book, verse 1, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. Verse 3, here it is. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. By the way, what was something that he did when he came back and he showed himself that he was alive? Remember in the Gospels? What, was, what were some of the convincing proofs? Number one, he showed his hands. He said, Thomas, you don't believe? Come touch me. Touch the hands. Touch the scar in my side. What was Thomas's appropriate response? Remember? Falls on his face and says, My Lord and my God. Usually that's a proper response when somebody comes back from the dead. You fall on your face and say, My Lord and my God. Look what happens here. And he says, He came for 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Now you guys tell me, why would Jesus come back from the grave for 40 days, show himself to all of the disciples on one occasion, show himself to 500, Paul tells us, at one time. Why would he do that? I mean, he could have died, conquered death, left an empty tomb. Everyone's utterly perplexed. What happened to the body? And he could have been gone, right? But he doesn't just leave it at that. He comes back for 40 days. Not one day. Not a week. 40 days he comes back. Why? What's that? Give evidence. That was it. He came because he knew that the task that was going to be required of these men and these, early, and these women early on, the task that they had before them to overcome the resistance barriers of their culture was so huge that they had to be utterly convinced that he, in fact, did what he said he was going to do, which was what? He was going to rise from the dead. He would pay for the sins of the world that apart from him, there is no life to be found. And that he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. And he says, I'm going to make you guys so convinced of that truth that I'm going to come back for 40 days. I'm going to eat with you. I'm going to, I'm going to rest with you. I'm going to go see believers non-believers, I'm going to see my disciples, I'm going to show myself to um, women followers for 40 days. Because you guys have a task that is going to be one of the greatest tasks any people have ever had to do in their life. And that is you're going to have to overcome some enormous barriers. He doesn't leave it at that though. Look in chapter 2 now. He tells them, hey, this thing is going to go out. There's going to be 
thousands they're going to be followers. I'm sure the disciples standing in Jerusalem were probably thinking, what's he talking about? Just us? A few of us? I mean, he's the one that did all the miracles. He's gone now. We're the ones? They're going to take this thing to the outermost parts of the earth? Well, God's good. Is he good? He's good. Chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each one of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. And what we find out is these other tongues here, in this context at least, isn't an ecstatic speech where there's no real sense of it. These are literal foreign languages. And all of these people here who are from all these different areas and provinces and districts are utterly amazed because they're hearing the disciples speak in their own languages. How do these people, these Galileans, how are they possibly speaking our languages? You know what the net result was? Peter gets so moved by this, he begins to preach. Here's your first sermon in your Bible. Ready? Chapter 22, or verse 22 of chapter 2. Peter says, Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles. What does that mean, by the way? Anybody have a different reading than accredited by God to you to do miracles? Attested to you. What's he saying there? Why did God have Jesus do miracles? Proof. That world was going to be so hard to overcome that Jesus had to come and do miracles. That's why, by the way, if you ever look at the miracles of the, of the Gospels, you always see miracles first, and then after miracles comes teaching. Miracles, teaching. Miracles, teaching. You know why? Because the miracles were there to authenticate the teaching. You see? So here, he says, God accredited to him to do these miracles for you in order to prove to you who he was. And look what he says. Wonders and signs which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. Meaning what? Why would they themselves know? They were there. They saw him. Some of them were the ones on the mountain getting fed with the few loaves and the fishes. When the nearest sea was miles away. Where are all these fish coming from? What an amazing miracle. Where do you get all these fish on top of a mountain? Right? You see lepers healed. The blind can see. The deaf can hear. You see the dead rising. Lazarus coming forth from his tomb. He says, you guys have seen these things. Verse 23, This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. There's the message right there. He goes on. You know what the result was? Verse 41. Well, look at verse 40. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Think that's a good message for today? Verse 41. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. How's that for an altar call? 4,000 come, 3,000 get saved. Incredible. 
And what was it that proved to them that the message that Peter was preaching was true? What was it? The languages. It was the fact that they could not believe this utter miracle. I mean, all these other religions, these mystery religions and other pagan deities and Roman gods surrounded them and Greek gods surrounded them, and yet they were impotent to do anything. They never saw great miracles. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this mighty fire like rushing wind blows in. And suddenly these few men who proclaim the name of Jesus as Lord begin speaking in their tongues. And 3,000 get saved. Why did God do it that way? Why did God let the Holy Spirit come upon them like a rushing wind so that they begin speaking in other tongues? What's that? To empower them and to do what? For, the, for those who didn't believe. To give proof. Yeah. Yep. That's right. Absolutely. I mean, these are fishermen, tax collectors. These are just regular old guys right here. And God does something in them. I mean, they're an ill-educated people. In fact, they're so ill-educated. I mean, a Galilean wasn't really known for being a, you know, a really bright person. And in fact, remember when Peter denied Jesus? How do they recognize Peter as being with Jesus? Remember, he was sitting around the fire, and this couple girls walk up and go, He's with him. For what? Listen to, his t- listen to him talk. He sounds like he's from Sanger. He can't possibly be educated. Listen to him. Sorry, Benita. I know you used to live in Sanger there. I apologize. But you've stepped it up. You're in Keller now. That's right. You can't possibly be, you see, 12 ordinary guys with the power of God in them. And he does this to convince the masses because there is an inertia that is needed to overcome this world, the unbelief in that world. If God didn't do these miracles, arguably, these people would have never believed it because it was utterly crazy to believe this. Can I show you one more before we go to these? Look at Acts 9. Acts chapter 9. Beginning in verse 36. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which when translated means Dorcas. Don't ever name your daughter Dorcas, by the way, ladies. Who was also doing good and helping the poor. About that time, she became sick and died, and her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. Lydda was near Joppa, so when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydda, they sent two men to him and urged him, Please, come at once. Why did they ask Peter to come at once? What did they know about Peter? What was so special about Peter? He's one of the apostles, and he could do what? Home, home dog could do some serious stuff. This guy, man, he could, he could speak 13 languages. This guy could raise the dead. And they said, hey, this is a good lady, man. Go get Peter. Peter went with him, and when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. All the widows stood around him crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with him. Peter sent them all out of the room. Then he got down on his knees and prayed, turning toward the dead woman. He said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes, and seeing Peter, she sat up. He took her by the hand and helped her to her feet. Then he called the believers and the widows and presented her to them alive. What's the result? Verse 42. 
This became known all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord. Why did God give Peter the power to raise Tabitha from the dead? Why? To prove, see, to, to them that the message that Peter was preaching was true. Because again, there was a cultural barrier, a wall there that was so great that something tremendous would have to happen in order to overcome that inertia that was going up against Christianity. Are you all with me? That's Acts for you right there. An utterly astounding book. Which, by the way, if I can just give you a little note here within this talk. Okay? This is free. Acts, in a lot of respects, is a book of transition. It's a book that transitions from Jesus and the disciples through the early church, the founding of churches, and then after Acts, you've got the disciples are gone. Um, Paul's dead eventually. Peter's dead. It's not recorded in Acts. Eventually the disciples die. It's a transitionary book. We've got to be very careful when you go to Acts that we don't try to extract fully developed theology out of the book of Acts. Acts is descriptive of unique ways sometimes of how God acted. Okay? We don't go to Acts and just say, because God did it that way, because God opened the prison gates for Peter, therefore we can pray it for prisons that gates will be opened. We don't do that. That's how God did it then. It's descriptive. It's not necessarily prescriptive. Now, look at your sheet here. I want to walk through these pretty quickly. I want you to get a sense of this. This is why I'm doing this. I want us to get a sense of just what exactly had to happen, what um, these early followers had to overcome in order for Christianity to be what it is today. The fact that we are sitting here today is a testament to the fact that these barriers have been overcome. And it shows the might and the work and the power of the Spirit of God. Uh, last week I had a, a, a friend of mine, I hadn't seen him in forever, he called me up, he's working on his doctorate, and he's just in a point where he's just kind of at a, kind of a crisis of his faith a little bit. Just some serious things he's wrestling with, struggling with, and he came to me, and he said, listen, I just, I can't talk to a lot of people about this. I'm working on my Ph.D. in theology, and I just, I just need to be honest with you. This is where I am. And he said, could you share with me some reasons why you're a Christian? And I said, you bet. And I gave him a bunch of reasons. But one of the ones I shared with him was, is I said, um, I've got to come up with an answer for this. And I had all of these things right here, and I walked through it with him. And I said, I've got to come up with some answer historically to explain how it was that the church overcame all of these resistance barriers and how it was that it thrived and it fulfilled the predictive mandate of Jesus that it would go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the outermost parts of the earth. Because has it done that? You bet it's done that. And so I walked through there and I said, you need to help me here. If we're going to punt, don't just punt mindlessly. Let's punt, but let's come up with some explanations for some things that you need to try to account for here. And so here's some of the things we talked through. Number one, early Christians were accused, ironically enough, of atheism. Now that was a serious charge by the Romans. Now what we mean by that, as I told you, is for the denying of the Roman guards. Why were Christians killed by the Romans during the times of persecution? 
Why were they killed? Was it because they believed Jesus was God? Is that what got them killed? No. They didn't have to deny that Jesus was God. A lot of times people think that's what it was. They were being held up by the sword saying, deny Jesus uh, or die. That wasn't it. All they had to do was say what? Caesar is Lord. They had to to simply um, believe in the deities of Rome. Many of them refused to do it. Certainly, I'm sure some of them compromised and, and gave in. But they were accused of atheism here, yet many stood strong and gave their lives up for that. Number two, they were accused of cannibalism. The communion supper. If you read John 6, if all you have was John 6, it's such a uh, interesting way that Jesus does this. He takes the bread and He says, this is my literally my flesh. Eat of my flesh. This is my blood. Drink my blood. Whoever eats of my blood and drinks of my flesh has life. But whoever does not, does not have life. And they were accused of cannibalism of that. Now, of course... That was, we know that whenever Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, he wasn't talking about the fact that they were eating human parts of the Savior. Number three, they were accused of incest. Uh, We know from some of the historians at that time that they were accused of being incestuous because they they loved their brothers and their sisters. They had this deep, deep affectionate love for one another, and they were accused of being an incestuous group. They would meet in house churches in secret. Why would they do it in secret, though, sometimes? Death. Persecution. So they would have these house churches with brothers and sisters who loved each other. And, of course, they would look at that and they would say, they would accuse them of being incestuous. All of those things simply made them social outcasts by those who didn't believe. Fourthly, they were accused of hating the world. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. Number one, because of their view of the universal sinfulness of man. See, it was they were anti-merit, that there's nothing you could do that could please the gods or God. Nothing you could do to please God. That left to yourself, you were dead in your sins. And because of that, they viewed Christians as being haters of mankind. And secondly, because they had this belief that they were separate from the world. They were consecrated unto God. They were not in of the world. They were merely in the world. Fifthly, they were accused of being a new religion. Their lack of antiquity discredited them. So you know what they had to do? They had to argue for an ancient origin out of Judaism. Now help me out here. If somebody came to you, this is still used today. People will say to you, How can you believe Christianity is true? It's such a young religion. Of all the religions of the world, the major religions, it's the newest one on the block. How can you possibly say that it's true and the other ones are not when it's so relatively new? Well, what would you say? There you go. Number one, you would say, listen, there were actually antecedents, right, to Christianity. And it was the Hebrew prophets who foretold of a coming Messiah that was to come. We didn't just begin at the birth of Jesus or at the death of Jesus. We began centuries before that. But if you want to go farther than that, before the prophets, where can we go? You can go to the garden. All the way back to the beginning of creation where God gave a promise, right? What was the promise that He gave in the garden? 
What's that? Yeah, with the serpent and, and Eve with the serpent and what God says. I will put enmity between you and the woman, right? And between your seed and her seed. And he will crush your head and you will bruise him on the heel, right? And it was the very first promise of God that a child, a male child, he will come and crush your head. A male child would come. So if you really want to be technical about it, you can go all the way back to creation to the point of the garden. That precedes all religions in the world. But if you want to even be more technical, can we go even farther back than that? Sure, Peter tells us that in the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, God was going to offer His Son. Before creation even came, in the predetermined plan and the foreknowledge of God, God was going to send His Son and offer Him up. And He would, he would be pleased to bruise Him. So we can go all the way back to the mind of God. So... The next time somebody says, as they did back then, that Christianity was kind of a new kid on the block, you might say, well, if what you mean by that is our writings relative to other writings are relatively new, then you're right. The New Testament is relatively new. But if you look at the antecedents that led up to the New Testament and to the person of Christ, we go all the way back to the mind of God, to the garden, to the prophets, and then he's here. Y'all with me? Next. Number six, they were accused of, of being absurd. This idea that the wisdom of God was demonstrated at the cross, that was utterly absurd. And I'm going to flesh it out here in a second. They were accused of intellectual foolishness. 1 Corinthians one twenty three. If you have your Bibles, flip there real quick. Paul kind of addresses this issue in the entire first, second of Corinth, the first chapter of Corinthians. He says, Beginning in verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know Him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But to preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. See that? It was foolishness to the Greeks. And the reason was because, I gave you two reasons here, the Greeks viewed matter, the, the stuff right here, it viewed matter as being completely unspiritual and carnal and therefore evil. And so anything that was encased in material form was so far from the pure spirit of God that for anybody to say that God was encased in human flesh, i.e., what's our technical word for that? Incarnation, a man in the flesh. That idea was so foolish to a Greek because what they're, what they're hearing you say is that God was encased in evil and in corruption. You see? It gets worse than that because we even believe that Jesus became what? He became sin. So on one level, they're even right that somehow Jesus became sin on our behalf. That was utterly foolish to the Greeks. Also, and I don't want to go too much into this, but Platonism was still alive and well. Um, how many of you took an intro to philosophy class in college or high school? Anybody here? A few of you? Plato essentially taught that there was basically two worlds. There was the world of the forms, which is this perfect universal world, and the world of what he called the particulars. The particulars were nothing but a, an imperfect reflection of the perfect forms, which you couldn't see. Okay? And truth 
and goodness and beauty and wisdom were to be found in the universals, not in the particulars. The particulars were fallen things. They were corrupt things. They were imperfect things. So for someone to say that we are to look to the man Jesus as being the source of all wisdom, and for John to say in the beginning was the what? The Word. What word is that, by the way, in Greek? Anybody remember? The Logos. That's that Greek idea, the Logos. In the beginning was the Logos, the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then verse 14 says, and He what? And the Word dwelt among us and became flesh. That idea was so repugnant to the Greeks. Number, number eight. They're accused also of being weak, like their alleged God who died on a cross. They were mocked for this, by the way. They were mocked for believing in a God who couldn't save himself. Does that remind you, by the way, of somebody on a cross next to him? What did he say? Surely, if you're the Son of God, save us and save yourself. That was the accusation. And yet Jesus gives his life, dies upon a cross, and they accuse Christians for being weak, just like their own God, who couldn't even save himself. Not only that, because of their virtues. Love thy neighbor, love thy enemy, turn the other cheek. Those were weak. That's nothing that Rome would do. Rome was about power, you see. It was fundamentally against what, everything that Rome believed about strength and honor and power. It wasn't about dying to yourself. They were accused by the Jews of blasphemy. God? A man? How about Numbers 24? Where it explicitly says, God is not a man that he should lie. But they would only take half that verse. God is not a man. Are you telling me that the same being that we believe that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, you're telling me now that he's this five foot ten Jew in human form? Utterly absurd. That's a stumbling block. That is utterly absurd to us. Not only that, but you're going to tell me that God what? God died? How in the world does God die? And of course, they were confused about the idea of the nature of Christ being both fully God and human, fully man. In the person of his humanity, he died, not in his deity. But their accusation was, you believe that Jesus was God, He dies on the cross, therefore God died on the cross? But worse than that, they believe that the curse of God is on those who are crucified. This man, Jesus, hung in open shame, naked on a cross. You're telling me that that man, with the curse of God in his life, is the embodiment of wisdom and truth and is God Himself? Utterly preposterous. Almost didn't get that word out. Preposterous. Martin Hengel, a brilliant New Testament scholar in Germany, wrote a little book called Crucifixion. And in this book he shows the social understanding of crucifixion in that day and how utterly repugnant to the Jews, to the Greeks, to the Romans, crucifixion was. It was the most humiliating, shameful, grotesque thing that could be done to a man. And any person that was crucified was at the lowest rung of, of, of societal um, opinion. 
that it would today, it would be the equivalent today of, of the lowest on the rung in our society today would be a pedophile, wouldn't it? I mean, there's not much you could think that would be worse than that. See, one who was hung on a cross to those people at that time is you were so shameful, so dirty, so impure. You had the very curse of God on your life. It's a good question to ask now. How do you take a belief that begins with a man dying on a cross with that opinion of him? How does that belief suddenly conquer out, survive out of Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth? It's a good question. A couple more. They were accused of being a religion for nobodies, for the ignorant, for the uninfluential. 1 Corinthians 1.26, look what Paul says here. He says, Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. What were they in that society? Nobodies. You mean I'm going to believe in a religion of nobodies? I mean, today, what do we, what do we like to do today? Are we any different? As soon as we get a somebody, what do we do? Get them at the pulpit. Get them to share his testimony. Because we want people to know that Christianity is a religion for somebodies, for famous people. See, let's put them up and share their testimony. We're no different today. A bunch of nobodies back then. And they were accused of that because the Romans and the Greeks, they believed in knowledge and wisdom and influence and power. So why would I want to believe this thing? This is a bunch of peasants. This is a religion of women. This is a religion of children. This is a religion of ill-educated males. See? Fishermen. And number 11. The Romans and the Greeks accused them of not being able to convince their own brethren. You ever wondered that, by the way? Why in the world did so many Jews not believe? Anybody ever ask you that question? You ever thought that? Why didn't they? What are some reasons? Help me out here. Certainly several thousand did believe, and it's estimated some five to 10,000 Jews, in fact, did believe and become followers of Christ. But that's a small percentage compared to how many Jews were actually in Jerusalem. Why did somebody not believe? Benita, you got an idea? Okay. It wasn't what they, what did they expect? What's that? And what else here? A warrior? Yeah. Pride, arrogance. They expected a warrior, a king to come, they were wanting deliverance from who? Who were they wanting deliverance from? Rome. And Jesus, man, when he was when he was really in his ministry, these guys were excited, weren't they? Because they thought, man, we got a guy that's raising the dead. He's materially materializing stuff out of nothing. Boy, I can't wait to see what he does with Rome. Right? And what does he do? He gives his life freely to be taken. Right? Jesus, I mean, Peter had, would, would want none of that, would he? Remember when Jesus says to Peter, Hey, Peter, they're going to take me, they're going to kill me. But I'm going to rise from the dead. Peter didn't hear that part. He just heard the part that he's going to suffer, he's going to die, and he's going to be buried, right? And what does Peter say? May this never be. No, Lord, that will not happen. Remember Peter's, or Jesus' kind, sensitive words to Peter? What's he say? Get behind me, Satan. 
See, because Peter's hindrance of Christ at the cross was an act of Satan. Right? Benita? They missed him. In fact, doesn't Jesus, in fact, say that to the scribes and to the Pharisees? Um, are you not the teachers of the law and you do not know? Didn't he say that to Nicodemus? Whenever Nicodemus says, what must I do to be born again? Remember, and Jesus starts telling him and Nicodemus is totally confused. Born again? How can I enter my mother's womb a second time? And what does Jesus say? Are you not a teacher of the law and yet you do not understand? That's exactly right, Benita. They they, They knew the law. They knew the prophets and yet they missed it. They completely missed it. And so they were accused of that. Wait a minute. You want us to believe this thing when you can't even get your, your own brethren to believe this? Finally, they're accused of hurting the social order in the economy. Number one, if Jesus is God, what do you no longer do? You no longer make idols. Sorry, Mr. Silversmith. All of a sudden, silversmiths get hurt. If Jesus is God and He's the final sacrifice, the Lamb of God sacrifice of the sins of the world, guess what I don't need anymore? I don't need Elsie the cow anymore. I don't need any more goats. I don't need any more animals at all. So now all of a sudden, all these people who are selling animals for sacrifices, which by the way, you think that was big business? You bet that was big business. Man, those sacrifices went up every day from thousands and thousands of people. These animals were just being slaughtered left and right. And people were making a whole lot of money off this. And all of a sudden, this belief that Jesus was the Lamb of God who no longer, we no longer need this to make sacrifices. Finally, fewer participants were giving to pagan temples and their priests now. Because now who is our high priest? Christ! He's our high priest forever. What's the temple now? My body is the temple. And what does my body house? The Holy Spirit. See? So now, I worship, I can worship within from my heart and I can worship God directly. You see? I no longer have to go into temples made with human hands. I no longer have to offer sacrifices. I no longer have to buy idols and pray to idols because all of that's done away. How do you think that culture handled that kind of a shift? among these people. They they hated it. These 12 things, and I could have listed easily another 15 or 20, social, cultural, philosophical barriers that the church had to overcome in order to survive. And yet, somehow, out of the very city that Jesus was crucified itself, Christianity survives. Now, let's try to think outside of the box, okay? Okay? For those of us who know Christ in here, which is probably most, if not all of us in here, let's just for a few moments think outside of the box. And if we were a critic, how would we respond to how Christianity originated? How would they account for the success of Christianity? What would be something that they would say to help account for these things? We've just presented a dozen barriers, resistance barriers, for it to overcome. And we would say that this only happened because of the supernatural act and power of God to do great miracles to prove to the people so there'd be enough inertia to overcome that culture. That's our case. That's our claim. That's Acts 1. That's Acts 2. That's Acts 9. All the way through. What would a critic say? 
It's always good to think in terms of a critic to try to understand their world. Yeah. There you go. That's right. Immediately they begin to say these guys are all drunk with wine, right? Now, initially, though, they were accusing the disciples of being drunk with wine, right? The 3,000 that got saved, they didn't think they were drunk with wine because what were they doing? What did they hear? They heard them in their languages. The people that thought that they were drunk with wine were the people who the 12 disciples weren't speaking their language, right? So you still got these 3,000 over here that, that all of a sudden see this power. But, yeah, maybe they would think that these guys just fooled everybody. That's one reason, right? You could say, well, they just happened to fool everybody. Does that wash with you, by the way? That these guys just happened to fool everybody? I have a hard time with that one. That's kind of a big, giant horse bill to swallow for me. What else? What else would a critic say? It's kind of tough, actually, isn't it, to really think of a good, insightful criticism for how a belief in a crucified Savior that message could overcome that part of the world, what else would they say? Great. So good. That's excellent. In fact, that is one of the main criticisms, is that this time was ripe for a new belief system to be able to, to suddenly blossom because of the dissatisfaction that was going on there. Now, what would be your instinctive criticism here? Let's think critically together for a few minutes before we conclude. What would you say to something like that? Someone says, listen, the time was right for a new religion to come on, come on the scene. What would you say? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So, how does that fact explain the martyrdoms? Boy, a great new religion. Right? Burning them at the stakes, wrapping them up in lion skins and animal skins, torching them at garden parties. Yeah, that might be kind of tough to account for. It wasn't like this new religion suddenly gave them great, what, prosperity and status. It was not a socially attractive religion at all. In fact, if anything, this religion did what to individuals? Made life worse. Um, what else? Well, Galatians tells us that, right? In the fullness of the time, God sent His Son. Right? The fullness of the time, meaning that that, that time was right. What was, the, what was the universal language of the world at that time? All throughout the Roman Empire. Greek. It was the one time at that time where you had a language, Latin and Greek, where virtually everybody spoke it. And now you could communicate the gospel in a universal language. If you knew one language, you could take it anywhere across the empire. You had the highway system, the byway system, you had ports. It was a perfect time in that top part of the world, in the center of the world, to finally bring in His Son for it to now go out. Anything else? What else would you say, guys? The fact that we can't think of much ought to encourage you, by the way, to really think of a good criticism about this. You really see almost it has to be the supernatural power of God to overcome all of these resistance barriers for this thing to survive. Did you have a thought? I tell you, take a deep breath. Don't take deep breaths in here. I'll call on you. Yeah, you can definitely say that because it was religion of nobody's, therefore it grew because nobody chose to follow it. 
Uh, let's give a quick, maybe, assessment of that. What would y'all say to that? Again, what happened to the nobodies? They get killed. A whole bunch of nobodies get killed. Uh, what else? Who generally controls cultures? Nobodies? Who controls it? The aristocratic people, don't they? The priests, the wealthy. They're the ones who establish pagan religions. Do you think they're going to let a bunch of nobodies suddenly overturn their world? Not at all. Unless those nobodies were so convinced of something that they're willing to give their own lives for something because they knew that it was true. Maybe they saw somebody for 40 days come back from the dead. Well, that's one of the things I like to spend my spare time doing is thinking of what would the other side say and really come up with the best criticism I can possibly come up with to try to account for certain things. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. they would say the criticism is that the writings happened so much later than the actual events, so how do you know that these events actually occurred? Um, now, that's a, there's a little more sophisticated response to that, but some of you probably know it. What, what would it be? What's that? We certainly had an oral tradition that was immediately passed down. Right, The Gospels were written a couple of decades after the fact. Uh, but what we also have, though, is we do have non-Christian uh, testimony that actually uh, records the martyrdoms of the disciples, the life of Jesus, who they believe Jesus was, that uh, they worshipped him as a god. And so you have independent sources all giving credence historically to the accounts that happened back then. Um, and also it, it would probably be just, just biased to say because these sources were written a couple of decades later, you can't, you can't trust them. I mean, what could we trust then from ancient history? We have virtually nothing that's inside of 20 years of ancient accounts. Everything is dated much later. Could you imagine all of a sudden if, you know, what about Holocaust accounts? What, what if you said you can't trust Holocaust accounts, one, because Jews wrote them and they're, not, and they're biased? Well, those are the most reliable accounts that we have. You know, what if somebody who was a Holocaust survivor today, you know, 40 years later, 50 years later, decided to write about the Holocaust? Do you think he'd have a pretty good memory of it? I think he probably would because of the profoundness of the event. So the proximity of the writings, you could argue and say, well, these events were so profound that they left these memories that were so embedded in these people, on top of the fact that there was strong, powerful oral tradition going on at that time. Any final comments or thoughts on this, Benita? Josephus was actually a, a Jewish general who became um, a, a historian and wrote the standard work for a history of the Jews called the Antiquities. So he's, he's highly reliable. I mean, he hasn't been right on everything according to historians, but he's highly reliable. And he's mentioned several things about Jesus, about James, about uh, Christians. So we use Josephus uh, because Josephus, number one, was not a big fan of Christianity. Being a Jew himself, he was very um, against the movement of Christianity because he did see it as, as aberrant Judaism. He saw it as a cult. And so the things that he says that happen to agree with the Gospels or the New Testament are things that we say, wow, this must be true because you've got an early critic agreeing with the testimony found in the Scriptures. And you can go get his one-volume work on the Antiquities if you want. I'm sure you guys would love that. Mardell carries it. You guys ever seen that, Josephus? Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. That's a great question. Um, you know, you see... 
40, for whatever reason in the Bible, seems to be a time of, of God's period of trial. You see um, 40 years in the, in the, uh, in the desert. Uh, Jesus goes in the desert, is tempted for 40 days. Right? He comes back for 40 days. It's almost it's a picture of um, what's following as, as a time of great trial. You know, So it's, it's one of those numerology things where you see God act in certain ways with the same number sometimes. Um, some have taken that to be simply more of a kind of a, a, a figurative number because 40 is, is seen like that. But I don't take it as figurative because it's written in the book of Acts, and Acts is a historical narrative. It's not poetical. It's not apocalyptic. It's historical narrative. And so there's no reason to say it's not a historical number. So I think it's probably literal. Well, I hope this was somewhat helpful. Um, I wanted, again, the reason I did this is because I wanted us to see, as we go through the book of Acts, I wanted you to see uh, what it was, disciples, as we go through parts of the book over the next several weeks, what it was they had to overcome. And this is going to help us as we kind of interact with those around us. Uh, it's going to help us to see how is it that we can help people overcome their own obstacles to belief in Christ as the early church did. And, um, and most importantly, the fact that God did such an amazing thing to help them overcome so many barriers really helps us, I don't know about you, but it shores up that confidence that, wow, this really is the power of God driving the gospel. So it's a great thing just to praise the Lord over because um, I'm utterly convinced every time I study this stuff.